I was incarcerated in maximum security prison in Texas. I spent some time in Huntsville. I spent the bulk of my time in a place south of Houston in Brazoria called the Clemens Unit. Very difficult time, very difficult season. But during that time, God proved himself faithful to preserve, to keep, and more importantly, to fellowship and to grow my spirit during that difficult season. What felt to me like wasted time in the present was really a spiritual deepening for the future. Hey guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. Today we welcome onto the podcast Pastor Joe Hanthorn of Wisconsin. Uh, Pastor Hanthorn, thank you so much for taking time with us, sitting down with us, telling us your story. Um, we have a mutual friend in Pastor Donnie Copeland in Little Rock. He's not always been in Little Rock. He was your your family's pastor in Texas, correct? That is correct. Well, we are so thrilled to have you on. He suggested that we get you on, and I'm so excited that we were able to find a time where we were both available to sit down and hear your story. Um, it's a wild story, so I hope you guys are ready to hear such an awesome, impactful story of what God can do in people's lives. Pastor Hanthorn, thank you so much. Um, let's get going from the beginning. Tell me a little bit about how uh, you were raised, uh, were you always in truth, that kind of thing. Wonderful. Well, I'm honored to be with you, and I appreciate the opportunity here just to open up and share a little bit of what God has done in my life. Um, I was uh, I was raised in an apostolic home uh, early on. Uh, my both of my parents um, had not been living for God uh, up until the time that my brother and I were born, and um, but my dad had had made a commitment about the time that I was born that he would live for God and raise his children. Uh, in truth, and he did that. Um, our, our home was was very good early on. Uh, we experienced uh, a lot of what many apostolic kids would experience. We grew up in Christian school. Um, we uh, went to church three times a week. Uh, very involved church was at the center of our life. Um, unfortunately, um, like uh, many homes, uh, things changed over time. And um, there were some some issues that that uh, came into our family, uh, some things that, that affected my parents, and um, they they began to drift uh, from their their commitments. And uh, in the process of doing that, uh, a lot of the the woundedness from their past uh, began to uh, revisit our home, uh, some of the things that they had gone through. Um, back in the uh, in the fifties and and sixties, when they were growing up, um, abuse and, and alcoholism and other things uh, began to to mark our home. Um, by the time that I was about, I want to say about thirteen or fourteen, things were were really out of control. Uh, I wanted to be uh, anywhere but where I was, and I wanted to to uh, belong to someone else and identify with something else. And so I began to get involved with things, uh, with people, 
and activities that were uh, inconsistent with the values that I had been raised with early on. Um, by the time that I was 16, uh, 15, 16, I was experimenting pretty heavily uh, with drugs and alcohol. Uh, by the time that I was 17, uh, I was a full-on user, uh, tripping acid, uh, doing a lot of meth. Uh, cocaine was a was a, uh, a, a frequent uh, drug of, of choice. Uh, by the time that I was 18, I was a needle junkie. What introduced you to all these drugs, Pastor Hanthorn? Excuse me. What introduced you to all these drugs? Like, what? How did how did you start getting involved in those things? You know, um, I, I don't think I ever woke up any one morning and decided to go find methamphetamine. I think it was just the the slow, steady, gradual drift from uh, godly environments, from protective covering. And, um, you know, peer groups uh, beginning to identify more with, um, you know, outcasts, beginning to get involved in uh, music scenes. Um, I, I enjoyed going to clubs and uh, was very involved in, in kind of the grunge movement of the early mid 90s. Um, and so it was just kind of a natural progression. I don't know that I ever had a moment where I just decided to go start using drugs uh it was just a, a very slow natural progression uh, based on the environments that i continued to put myself in and um by the time that i was i was 18 i was a like i said a full-on needle junkie a track marks all over my arms um the methamphetamine uh, is, is a very destructive drug it was it was my my uh, most frequently used drug um, I would probably weighed about 115 pounds. Um, face was all broke out. Uh, I'd already started to have, um, serious dental problems as a result of the, uh, the chemicals and the toxins and the drugs. Uh, so here I am 18 years old and, um, I am, uh, a high school dropout at this point. I quit high school in the ninth grade. Uh, the, the confusion of our home, the, um, the, the challenges in our home, uh, there was little oversight over my life as a teenager. And so I was pretty much free to, to do what I wanted. And, and I, and I did. And, um, I, uh, I found myself at 18, uh, unable to hold a job. I'd had a number of, of opportunities to work and usually stole money or didn't show up for work, very inconsistent. And, um, I, I began to get involved in criminal activity. Actually, when I was 17, I committed a couple of burglaries and I was placed on uh, felony probation uh, for both of those burglaries. And um, then by the time that I was 18, this drug addiction was kind of reaching its peak. And I remember one night in, in November of 1994, um, I, I went out and uh, with a with a buddy of mine and I committed an armed robbery. And this was in November of 94. And that night really changed everything because it was a, it was a watershed moment where I, I crossed the line, not only with the kind of actions that I was taking, the, the level of, of violence that I was willing to resort to, but, but also uh, it crossed the line in that I had violated two felony probations in the commission of that particular crime. And um, 
I was in the county jail. And as I had often done, I picked up the phone and I called my mom and I, you know, began to go through the, the, the usual song and dance of how sorry I was and, and things were going to be different. And this was my wake up call. And, and, uh, my mom did manage to scrape up enough money to post bond for me, but I knew that it was just a matter of time before all of the games were going to catch up with me. And, uh, that as much as I wanted to keep kicking this can down the road, that uh, a payday was coming. That was in November of 94. And um, when I got out of jail, um, the reality of this impending um, sort of chain reaction that I had set in motion, uh, once, once the, the paperwork was processed, once uh, the probation department was notified, they would issue warrants for re revocation of my probation. I would be arrested for those felonies. That would trigger the the um, the forfeiture of my bond, uh, which means that I would be again rearrested for the armed robbery, and I was well on my way to prison. That thought overwhelmed me. I was again 18 years old a ninth grade high school dropout, very, very emotionally unstable at the time. I had been using a tremendous amount of drugs, uh, again, a lot of meth. I uh, was using a lot of LSD to the point that I couldn't concentrate uh, even when I wasn't high or tripping. Um, and I began to feel the full weight of depression. And um, there were moments in the months between uh, November of 94 and January of 95 that I seriously contemplated suicide. Uh, one night in particular, I remember lining up three, uh, three needles and giving myself three back-to-back -back shots, um, trying to just escape. Uh, this ache and this emptiness and this sense of having absolutely destroyed and ruined my life. Wow. What, I, uh, what was the emotional state, do you think, of your family at this point in your life? What was there? Did you have a relationship with them at all? Yes, to a point. Um, you know, I want to say this. I, I, I respect my family. Uh, very much. I love my family. I have a good relationship with my family to this day. Um, people make mistakes. And uh, unfortunately, my family was subject to um, uh, mistakes that were made. And um, I think more importantly, my family was subject to uh, what some people might call generational curses. And uh, I'm not a I'm not a. Uh, not a person who's uh, overly obsessed with uh, the concept of demons or curses. I do believe they exist, and I do believe they exert influence in our world. Mm -hmm. um, but I think sometimes generational curses are a little more subtle than, you know, a um, some sort of a, a witchcraft or, or some sort of hex on a family. There was a lot of woundedness. Uh, a lot of missed opportunities, a lot of regret, a lot of um, 
a lot of, you know, deep wounds that have been inflicted both verbally and physically. Um, and so I think while we still lived in the same house, you know, you can be a functional family and not be a healthy family. Yeah. And, um, I'm not interested in just having function. God has called us to have healthy families. And uh, while our family functioned, uh, paid our bills, and and, uh, generally speaking, everything was fairly functional, uh, there was a lot of unhealthy behavior. Um, And I think that um, that was there because uh, it was learned behavior. Uh, It was what my parents had grown up both coming out of broken homes and out of abusive situations. And and so it was just this, this continuation of what had been uh, part of their story. And, um, you know, one of the things that I, I, I appreciate so much about my mom is that even while our home was uh, not really a Christian home at this time, uh, my mom would still maintain a relationship with an apostolic church. She, she may not go frequently and um, she may not have gone consistently, but she did maintain a relationship with an apostolic church. And uh, that was really um, an important moment of my life because when I was at the lowest ebb and I was contemplating suicide, I wanted to be, um, I wanted to be away from my family. I wanted to escape all of the, all of the pain that I felt personally, um, all of the, the insecurity that I was dealing with. Um, and there was one thing that I think was, was a lifeline for me. And it was that I knew that if I ever needed to talk to a preacher that I could probably find one through my mom. And, um, I remember asking, her one night if um if i could talk to the pastor of the church that she was attending and um somehow that meeting was set up Uh, that pastor is uh donnie copeland and i remember going uh, to to meet him in his office Uh, i think maybe my dad had had driven me there Um, i went to meet him in january of 95 and um Sitting there, I began to explain to Brother Copeland how um, messed up my life was, how hurt I was, how fearful I was. Um, I was a ninth grade high school dropout. Just felt like I'd absolutely destroyed any future that I had ever felt when I was five, six, seven years old growing up in a Christian school. And I remember Brother Copeland leaning across his desk that night. And he said to me, he said, son, God is not your bail bondsman. But if you are looking for life change, God is in the life changing business. Mm. And that word produced such hope in me. I, I began the process that night of repenting. I got down at a chair in that little office where the Copeland put his hand on my back. And on my knees there, I began to weep and just pour my heart out to God. I felt lighter when I finished. I felt like a load had been lifted off of me that evening. I remember going home and um, I knew that my repentance was not done. I had about 
uh, between two and three thousand dollars worth of fronted dope in my house. Uh, all of my needles, uh, a lot of other things, paraphernalia uh, that I need to get rid of. And I remember ripping posters off the wall, getting rid of CDs, music that I needed to get rid of. And uh, I came to my little stash that I kept hidden behind some baseball hats, uh, little baggies of cocaine and methamphetamine. And I remember taking those those baggies into the bathroom. And I, I stood in there for what seemed like quite some time over the toilet. And I was just arguing with myself about whether I could, you know, get away with going ahead and selling this and being done with it. Or I really couldn't give it back to the dealer. I mean, it's, it's fronted. You can't. You're stuck with it. You either bring them the money or, I mean, it's it's that's your only option, isn't it? That really is, especially in my case, because I had received the dope, then I had cut the dope so that I could use some of it. And so I was selling highly cut dope, and there's no way that I could give it back to the dealer. And so I was facing uh, the decision of either trying to sell this and then pay the dealer off and be done or flush it and run the risk of facing consequences uh, from my dealer. And I remember standing there and just the fear, the hesitation, the doubts. And in the middle of all of that, this, this sense of urgency and this sense of finality and determination just crept up in me. And I knew that if I was ever going to be different, that I had to be dramatic in my repentance, that I couldn't do this with half measures. And it was at that point that I started just dropping one bag after the other into the toilet. I broke my needles. I threw them in the trash. I got rid of everything that I needed to get rid of. And for about two to three weeks, I was, I was sort of in limbo. I, I wasn't using drugs, but I, I was still such a hollow person. I was still very hopeless. I was still battling tremendous depression. I was still smoking cigarettes. And one night I went, I went to church. I was trying to go to church on a periodic basis. There was a great man from our local assembly whose name was Kelly Gray. He would come pick me up for church. And, um, I remember going to church on a Sunday night and, uh, I sat in the back. I had a, had a bald head. I had a ponytail growing out of the top of my head. I had body piercings all over and, uh, I loved to hang out in the mosh pits and, and uh, was into the grunge movement. And um, so I, I looked quite a sight. And I remember sitting at the back of the sanctuary there while Brother Copeland preached. And I was unmoved. My arms were crossed. And uh, he finished preaching. And he walked back to where I was at. And everyone else had kind of gathered up around the front. They were praying. And Brother Copeland just put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, Joe, I want to pray for you. And I said, okay. And I figured we were in for one of those God helping or touch his heart prayers. And he prayed one of the simplest sobering prayers I've ever heard. Put his hand on my shoulder and he said, God, I pray that you would give Joe a profound fear and respect for your dealing with him. Mm. And then he left. 
And I got up to go outside and smoke another cigarette. I'd left several times during the service to do that. And I stopped in the bathroom. And while I was in that bathroom, I remember looking in the mirror. And it was as if the Lord allowed me to see myself the way he saw me. And I was absolutely devastated by the person that I was looking at. And there was this, again, this holy desperation that rose up in me. And I grabbed my little box of Marlboro Reds and I crushed them, threw them in a trash can. I walked right down to the front. I tapped Brother Copeland on the shoulder. And I asked him then, I said, would you baptize me? That night they put me in the water. They told me that I needed to expect God to fill me with the Holy Ghost when I came out of the water. And when I came out of the water, I lifted up my hands and I began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave me the ability. And it was like somebody had set me down by a refreshing, wonderful, free flow of God's Spirit. And it was just flowing through my life. And from that night until this day, which has been now nearly 25 years, a little over 25 years, I've never put a needle in my arm except for medical reasons. I've never drank alcohol. God has completely and totally delivered me from all of that. And so his power, his spirit, coupled with the sincere journey of repentance, brought complete healing and transformation into my life. So even though you had that sincere um, moment in your life and you realized or you looked in the mirror and you saw how God saw you and, um, you know, all of that, you had that spiritual movement. uh, There was still a side of you or not a side of you, but a side of your life that um, was still hooked by your previous transactions in life, like with your drug dealer and with the law and all that, how did, how were you able to um, maneuver through all of that? Um, because that couldn't have been easy. No, in fact, there was there was a lot of fear. And one of the things that I've learned through the years is that the enemy loves to get us in real deep, so deep that we we can't see any way out. And quite honestly, you know. At 18, with my limited experience, my very limited education, there was no way that I could imagine um, a restorative journey the way that God has provided it. At some point, we've got to stop trying to play the scenarios out in our mind on how God can fix this situation, and we have to blindly trust God and act upon faith, take steps of faith. The Bible says Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. And I think every process of restoration in our life, or every process, period, that God begins in our life, will begin with very limited understanding of how it's going to unfold. And that's what trust and faith is all about. And, you know, I, I wanted to understand the outcomes, but God wanted me to trust him. And so I, I was filled with the Holy Ghost, delivered from this addiction. Um, I, I did, in fact, there was still a lot of threats being made to me by my uh, drug dealer. Uh, there was a lot of warrants that were still pending. Uh, I had a suspended driver's license. Um, I, I had held probably 20, 25 jobs by the time I was 18. I was not employable. Um, 
there was so much of my life that was just twisted and and broken and so i didn't see a future but god did and god's future for me was down a pathway that i would not have chosen um two months after being filled with the holy ghost i was arrested for the violation of my felony probations and for the forfeiture of the bond of my armed robbery and i found myself sitting in the county jail facing very serious prison time now that's not where i wanted to be um i was believing that god was going to supernaturally relieve me of the consequences of my past decisions and one of the things that i had learned is that while god will relieve us of the eternal consequences and many times even of the spiritual consequences god always uses our temporal consequences as a pathway of restoration and holiness in our lives and the lord took me on a journey of having to accept his will and his path for my life even if that path took me into a very dark valley and into a place that i did not want to go here's the thing i, I never i never on this journey i never made a deal with god i never said god i'll live for you if i, I never said god if you get me out of prison or keep me from prison then i'll live for you but let's be real I certainly thought it and it was it was in my heart that if I live for God there's a good chance God may work on my behalf mm -hmm. and I remember the day that I was arrested and I was on my way to the county jail in the back of the squad car I can remember it as if it was yesterday and thinking to myself and I actually started to pray out loud not too loud but just kind of in a whisper and i was talking to the lord and i said god i'm still going to live for you even if i go to jail i'd already been living for the lord for about two months in the process of you know just getting anchored in my faith and and having experienced the holy ghost um i prayed through in january of uh 95 and i was arrested in march of 95 and, and i'm telling the lord god i'll i'll live for you even if I've got to be in jail. And I was certainly praying that the Lord would open the door. And uh, we were, my pastor was praying. People from the church were praying with me. Um, the district attorney had offered me a, a four-year prison sentence, which to me at the time seemed impossible. It seemed um, harsh, and, and uh, I couldn't imagine spending four years in prison. And so we were all praying and fasting that God would move a mountain, that God would work a miracle, that God would relieve me of this, that somehow my probation would get reinstated, that maybe I could do six months boot camp and then be put back on probation. And uh, I had a court-appointed attorney who was uh, just a godsend. He was such a great man. He and, and my pastor um, had scheduled a meeting with the district attorney. Uh, we had been working with the assistant district attorney who had offered us this four-year plea bargain. Now, please understand that my crime 
of armed robbery carried penalty of five to ninety nine, and I had already been convicted of two previous previous felonies. So four years was uh, quite a minimum plea bargain given the circumstances. Yeah, Even though at the moment it felt like that. a lot. What's that? A lot of people would have jumped all over that. Four years, that's Absolutely. nothing. Absolutely. Yeah. But we're, we're just believing God for a miracle. And uh, my pastor and the attorney finally got a meeting with the, uh, the district attorney. And uh, they told him about my conversion. And they presented my cause to him. And uh, I was so excited that day. I believe I'd even fasted that day. I'm in the county jail, and I am just can't wait to hear news on what happened. And I remember probably about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I, I went to the little payphone, and I, I dialed the collect number and, and called my attorney's office and got him on the phone. And I said, Scott, give me the good news. And he said, Joe, I wish I had some good news to give you. He said, but unfortunately, the meeting did not go the way we had hoped it would go. We presented your case to the district attorney, and as he began to look through your file and see your previous felony convictions, he said there was no way that his assistant had any right to offer you four years, that the minimum plea bargain they could offer you would be 20 years with a minimum of 16 served. Now, I was guilty. There was no way of fighting this in court. Going to jury trial would have been a fool's errand. My only hope was a plea bargain. And at that moment, my only hope was a minimum of 16 years in prison. For an 18-year-old, that seemed like a lifetime. To say that I was demoralized is an understatement. I was gutted. I didn't know what else to do. But during the few months I had been in the county jail, I had developed a discipline of prayer. And I was in a, I was in a, a big sort of what they called a pod, and they had about 50 men in that pod. And attached to the pod, there was a little visitation room where attorneys and other people could come and visit with an inmate without that inmate having to leave the pod. And the guards would allow me. I just started asking, and they started giving me permission. The guards would allow me to go into this little room and pray every day, three times a day. And I would do, I would eat my meal, and then I would go pray. On days that I fasted, I would just go in there and pray. So when they brought breakfast, I would eat breakfast and go pray. When they brought lunch, I would eat lunch and then go pray. And the same thing with dinner. When this phone call came through, and I was absolutely devastated, I went back to that place that felt safe, which was my little prayer room in that jail. And I got in that red plastic chair in my little orange jumpsuit, and I began to rock back and forth and do what I had done for the last couple of months. And I was praying all the right things. I knew what I was supposed to say. And I was telling the Lord that I would do whatever he wanted me to do. And if he wanted me to spend 20 years in prison, if he wanted me to spend five years in prison, if that's what I needed to do to be the man that God wanted me to be, then I would do it. That's what I was praying. God, whatever it takes for me to be the kind of person that you want me to be, then I'm willing to do that. And somewhere through the process of praying that prayer, I stopped. And I prayed the single most important prayer of my life. 
I said, Lord, you know that I don't mean a word of that. But God, would you do such a work in my heart that I could say things like that and truly mean it? And when I said that, something in me absolutely broke. My will, perhaps for the first time in my life, had been fully surrendered to God. I didn't want to spend five years in prison, but I was willing to be made willing. And I was willing to allow the Lord to do a sovereign work in my life, to change my desires. And God began to refine my motives at that point, because whether I realize it or not, and even though I had never said, God, I'll live for you if, my motive in living for God had been to avoid prison. And so the Lord gave me an opportunity to lay that motive on an altar. For the next few months, I dealt with the uncertainty of my future. Wasn't sure how this would unfold. Eventually, God intervened. The district attorney softened, and they wound up giving me an eight-year sentence, and we signed the agreement for that plea bargain. Long story short, I wound up spending five years and two months from the time that I was 18 until I was 24. I was incarcerated in maximum security prison in Texas. I spent some time in Huntsville. I spent the bulk of my time in a place south of Houston and Brazoria called the Clemens Unit. Very difficult time, very difficult season. But during that time, God proved himself faithful to preserve, to keep, and more importantly, to fellowship and to grow my spirit during that difficult season. What felt to me like wasted time in the present was really a spiritual deepening for the future. I'll never forget Brother Copeland coming to visit me in jail shortly after my sentence started. I just communicated this to our church this week. It's very fresh. I, I remember looking through the glass and he told me, he said, Joe, you're in confinement right now. He said, don't waste this time. And I thought to myself, waste it. I want to get rid of it. I want out of here. And he reminded me that a man can be young in years and old in experience if he wastes no time. And it would have been easy for me to view my, my prison sentence as time wasted, something that I needed to quickly get through. But God wanted me to slow down because God wanted to do a restorative healing work in my heart. There had been a lot of emotional damage. There had been a lot of personal deception there had been a lot of shame in my life that the Lord needed to get me alone with him so he could begin to unwind some of that knot that had been created in my life wow so how does someone in your situation in prison how do they you know I mean, the only only knowledge I have of prison is just what I see on like documentaries about it. Theatrical versions, yeah. And and so in it, it would seem to me that's a very hard place to remain faithful to God, and especially um, being in a situation where you're trying to not just know God, but you're trying to grow and develop as a person. 
how, how do you do that in such a hostile environment? That's a great question. And I think you just, it, it begins with a hunger. If you don't have a genuine hunger for God, um, you probably won't. Um, it is a difficult environment in many respects. Um, the, the surprise for a lot of people is that all the temptations that you have on the outside, you have on the inside. And um, you think that you're sheltered from those temptations, but lust still exists. Greed still exists. Temptations still exist. Lies can still happen. You know, so there's the fear is still a, a very present temptation. So all the temptations that you have on the outside, you have on the inside. They may come in a different degree or in a different way, but they're there nonetheless. And for me, I think the, the key for me was falling in love with my Bible. And um, my Bible became my best friend. I've got several Bibles here on my shelf that are here in my office that literally if you pick them up, they're going to just, just about fall apart because they were my dear friend during my time in prison. Uh, I marked them up. I, I cried into them. I slept with them at times. Um, I, I made it my passion to know God through his word. That was my link to God. That was my companionship. You know, prison, you're, you, you're with dozens of people and many times in very close proximity, but it's one of the loneliest places on earth. And um, I found that even though I was lonely, I was never alone. And I was never without the companionship of God. God had pledged himself to me when he filled me with the Holy Ghost. And he was not going to leave me comfortless and without help during this season of development and growth. You know, I, I learned that God was using this, again, to refine my spirit. He was not making it easy on me, but he was developing me in this process. And living for God in there was challenging, but it had to come by way of sheer determination produced from deep hunger. And, you know, there was, there was pressure to conform. Uh, you know, I didn't want to appear weak. Um, there was a, a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, pressure to, to put on a front. Um, I remember praying daily down by my bedside. Um, and, you know, we Pentecostals pray a little more emotionally than other people. And I would be down there beside my bunk. Uh, sometimes I would be in a setting where there'd be 50 men in the, in the tank or the pod with me. And uh, I would still get down on my knees every day. I just committed myself that I wasn't going to give up my prayer time. I wanted to be like Daniel. I wanted to have that consistent time and place for prayer. And I remember being down there praying and I would be weeping, talking in tongues or experiencing the presence of God. And I would have men walk by and, and look at me and I'd have others come by and try to comfort me. And they would say, hey, man, nobody's going to hurt you. It's going to be OK. Well, that challenged my ego. You know, I don't I don't want people to think I'm weak. And uh, and I would have to push through that and just make sure that I understand that the most important relationship I've got right now is my relationship with God. So I think that's what kept me. I'll say this also about prison is, is that, you know, throughout that time, God repeatedly gave me opportunities 
to lay my motives on an altar. Motives is a huge word. It's one of the biggest words in life. And if we walk with God, God will give us opportunities to lay our motives on an altar. The same way that he gave Abraham an opportunity to lay his motive on an altar. When he called Isaac or called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, that whole scenario was about Abraham showing God that he was in this for God, not for Isaac. And God repeatedly gave me opportunities. I remember when I came up for my first parole after about 10 months, um, I was just believing God to help me make my first parole. I had, I had no disciplinary action. I'd been a model prisoner. And I just knew the Lord was going to open the door. Lord, I've passed these other tests. I've been living for you for now near, nearly a year. And when I received my first set off, as they call it, I had a two year set off so that the, the parole board would not see me again for two years. It was devastating. And I remember going to a place alone and I remember sitting down there with my little notification of denial and bringing that to God and saying, God, I'm still going to live for you. You didn't give me what I asked for. But I'm laying this motive on the altar and I'm still going to live for you. That happened to me three times. I had to see the parole board four times before I finally made parole. And each time I would bring that to God and say, God, I'm still going to live for you. Whether I get parole or not, I've committed myself to being the person that you want me to be. So God proved himself faithful. Um, he um, preserved me. I could go on. I don't want to just go on ad nauseum. But there were there were times when I was threatened. Uh, prison is, a, is an intensely racial environment. Um, I was threatened uh, by uh, members of other races. Um, I was threatened by members of my own race because I was not, according to their terms, I was not down for the cause. Hmm. Um, there was there was one group that actually had put a hit out on me, um, and God intervened in that situation. Um, I never had to fight. I never, I was never abused. I was never, uh, I was never beat up. There were times that I was very fearful. There were times that I felt like uh, danger was imminent, um, but God preserved me. There were times that I was, I was caught up in riots. Uh, I was gassed, I believe at least three times uh, by tear gas because I was in a place where a riot had kicked off. Um, there were men killed on the unit that I was on. Um, but God supernaturally preserved me and kept me through all of that. Let me tell you one story. Can I tell you one story? Absolutely, Absolutely. yes. Um, We're just sitting up here mesmerized I, by all your stories. Go ahead. When I arrived at my unit of assignment in Brazoria, Clemens Unit, um, the, the nickname is not a very flattering name. It's, it's called the Burning Hell, and uh, it's very hot. It was built in the 30s. Um, it's an old-style prison unit there in Texas, uh, maximum security, a lot of gang members there when I was there, and um, uh, I arrived there. The day that I arrived, there was a riot. Uh, the Mexicans and the whites uh, had kicked off a riot, and uh, they didn't have time to process me, so they threw me in a, in a holding cell, and uh, they were going to process me the next day, and... Um, I was sitting there and I watched as they begin to bring these men uh, from this riot into the administrative segregation area. And these men were bloodied and, and they began to triage some of them. And, 
and the realization of where I was began to set in and uh, just the magnitude of it. And um, the next day I was processed. I was placed um, placed on D-wing, third tier, seventh sail. Uh, there was four tiers high, 25 sails long, and uh, or 25 sails deep. And um, so you'd have, you know, 200 plus prisoners on that one wing. It's very loud, all concrete and metal. So um, the echoes just reverberated all day. There was one guard for the wing. He was down on the lower level. Um, he obviously couldn't know what was going on in all the sails. He couldn't hear a scream just because of the noise. TVs would be going in the day rooms and, and what have you. And I remember um, being on that wing in the day room and um, a, uh, a seasoned convict came up to me. He had a nickname there. His nickname was Joker. And um, he, um, he was a pretty perverse individual. Um, he had, um, and I, I don't want to use graphic language, but, but he basically had, um, uh, I don't, he had a couple of guys on the unit that belonged to him and, um, he was, um, very much uh, a predator and, uh, a big guy. And, uh, he came up to me in the day room and, I just arrived at the unit. I probably weighed 125 pounds, soaking wet, um, and uh, skinny, fresh-faced. Um, and he walked up to me and he told me that I had three choices, that I was either going to get with him, um, I was going to pay for protection, or they were going to take me out. And um, I told him, I said, I don't know what, uh, I, I don't, I, at first I said, I don't have any money. And uh, I promised God that I would not fight. And if get with you is what I think it is, you'll have to kill me. And, um, and he told me that he wouldn't, that this was not the first time that he had done this, um, and that I had until 7 o'clock that night to make up my mind what I wanted to do. Now, please understand, in prison, if you go to the guards, you're as good as dead. And um, as they say jokingly but there's some seriousness to it snitches get stitches and um i knew i couldn't go to the guards um i i wound up going to the uh, going to the chow hall with the rest of the group night i couldn't eat i was so frightened i got back and i went to my cell and the doors on the cells roll every hour on the hour so they roll, they roll them open for five minutes for you to come out, go to the day room, or go back into your cell, and then they close the cells again. So they roll every hour on the hour. And this man, um, he would come up to my cell. I, I just went to my cell, and I stayed there literally for the next, uh, the next two or three days. And I wouldn't come out. I was scared of facing this man. I was uh, frightened of what would happen to me. And he would come to my he would come to my cell. He would come in the hallway and he would stick his arms through my bars and he would taunt me and he would say all kinds of graphic, horrific things to me about what he was going to do. And, uh, I felt absolutely alone. I tried to pray and I felt like the concrete mocked my prayers. Somewhere in my, my tenure of being in prison, I had started committing 
whole passages of the Bible to memory. And I had memorized um, a passage in Psalm chapter 142. When I felt like my prayers weren't getting through to God, I just started quoting this passage out loud over myself as I sat there on the bunk every day. And here's what the passage says. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and with my voice unto the Lord I made my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him, and I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I walked, they have privily laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand and beheld there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me, no man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord, and said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. And I would repeat that prayer and that, that psalm over and over for two or three days until finally, somewhere in that period, it was as if the, the clouds lifted and the presence of God moved into that cell. And I can't explain the shift, but something in my mood, something in my attitude began to change. And it was only by the spirit and the presence of God that I believe was responding to my faith in his word. God lifted the fear. I remember that this man coming, everybody else was gone off of the unit. They were working. And this man was a janitor on the unit. And I had not been assigned to my job. So we were some of the only inmates on that unit at the time. And I remember him coming to me when everybody else was out working. And he stood outside my cell and he told me, he said, he said, next time they roll these doors, I'm going to come in your cell. And I knew that did not sound like a good idea. So I decided that instead of him coming in my cell, I was going to go outside and meet him in the day room. And I had been praying. I felt the Lord give me a word for him. I felt the Lord had assured me personally. I remember when the doors rolled, I grabbed my Bible. I walked out into the day room, and he was in the day room all by himself. And when he saw me walk into the day room carrying that Bible, he jumped up off the bench, and he screamed at me. He said, you brought that book in here. Because you think that book's going to keep me from jumping on you. And I'm telling you, the Holy Ghost had met with me. And there was such a sense of calm in my life. And I looked at him and I said, I said, Joker, this book can't do anything. But the God who wrote this book met with me. And he has assured me that you won't do anything to me. And he was stunned. He sat down on the bench. I sat down next to him. And for the next two, three hours, we just talked about God, my relationship with God, what God had done in my life. He told me, he said, I tried to be a Christian years ago. That's fake. And I said, Joker, have you ever had the Holy Ghost? Have you ever spoken tongues? Have you ever experienced the power of God in a real supernatural sense? And he was mesmerized by what I was saying. When we got to the end of the conversation, he looked at me and he said, I don't know why, but I'm going to let you make it. Of course, I knew why God had already God had already spoken to me. God had promised that no matter where this road took me, that if I would stay faithful to him, God would preserve me every step of the way 
on this path of restoration. And I can just tell story after story of how God supernaturally intervened in my life over a period of five years and two months. I was arrested in March of, of 1995. I was finally released from prison in May of 2000. God had done a deep work in my heart. God had dug a deep well in my life. And uh, little did I know that the Lord was setting me up for a time of restoration. I thought that, you know, I, I maybe would never get married. Here I am, 24 years old, getting out of prison. I've got no education. I'm a high school dropout. I've got a felony conviction. Um, and I got out of prison. I went back to the little church. Uh, Brother Copeland had continued writing and, and invested in my life. And other ministers had, uh, had uh, I'd met along the way, began to invest in me as well. And I got out. I hadn't earned any money in five years, so I applied for a Pell Grant. And I, I was given a, a full-ride grant to go to community college. Um, it was very intimidating because I, I didn't have a, a high school diploma. And so I had to sort of take some remedial courses and go through the process. And um, wound up doing that for two years, received an associate's degree in secondary education. Uh, God helped me, got some good grades, and uh, wound up transferring to a to a four-year liberal arts school. It was very expensive at the time. It was about 26000 a year to attend at the time. And um, I had a friend of mine that worked in the admissions office, um, encouraged me to um, apply for a full-ride scholarship. I did. Um, they only grant two a year to this particular university. Um, and I, I, it's a college that prizes itself on its diversity. And so I wrote an article uh, about how I would bring diversity to the college campus because I would probably be the only felon <laughs> on their campus. And uh, they were actually impressed by the article. Um, I did not win the full ride scholarship, but they did create a third scholarship. <laughs> and uh, they, they gave me um, all, but I believe it was 3000 a year. And uh, my, my college was covered. Um, my junior year of college, um, I began to feel the Lord call me to ministry. Um, I uh, began to get some opportunities to share my story at uh, different youth rallies or youth events. And uh, that same year, I met I met my wife. She was attending Texas Bible College in Lufkin. And um, we met and began to date. And uh, just a, a year later, in my senior year on my spring break, we married. And I went ahead and finished my a degree, so I've got two degrees, one associate's degree in secondary education and a bachelor's degree in um, history. And uh, I've never used my degree professionally uh, because as soon as I finished college, doors started opening for me to preach. I eventually accepted an opportunity to serve as an administrative pastor at a church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I was there for three years and uh, then moved to the Orlando area and served church there for one year uh, when my wife and I felt called by God to come to Wisconsin and uh, to take a small storefront church and uh, we have been here for um, I believe this is working on uh, 11 or 12 years now only God can call somebody from Orlando to Milwaukee <laughs> <laughs> well it, he did and uh, that's that's what it took we, we had to have a word from God and fortunately we got one I, I now have three daughters, uh, three beautiful girls. And let me just say this. Um, 
you know, one of my favorite scriptures is found in the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2. I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten, the canker worm, the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who hath dealt bountifully with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. When I, when I started this journey 25 years ago, I was a broken teenager with so much dysfunction and so much shame in my life with so little forecast as to how this future could look for me. But I chose to trust God, and I chose to believe that God works in processes, and that if I would just be faithful and committed to the process, no matter no matter how long it took or how winding and dark the path got, that God would be faithful to his word. And I stand here today. I've still got areas where I grow, where God wants me to grow. I stand here today knowing that God has restored my life. The things that, that either had been taken from me or the things that I had given up, things like a good family, things like an education, things like respect in the community, all of that God has restored to my life. He's not just a deliverer. He is a God who knows how to restore. When I was in the county jail, I, I remember I first arrived there and somebody told me, you need to get involved in an ACTS program. And I didn't know what ACTS was. Um, it's the, I think it's called something different today. It's Alcohol Chemical Treatment Series then. And it was a Pentecostal-based recovery program. And I remember asking an old convict, I said, hey, do they have an ACTS program in this jail? And uh, he said, ACTS, what's that? I said, well, it's like AA or NA except it's, it's Bible-based, and it believes in recovery, and, or believes in, in healing. And uh, he said, well, son, are you, a, are you an alcoholic? And I said, no, I'm an ex-drug addict. And he looked at me, and he's an old seasoned convict. And he said, he said no, son, he said, he said, you're a recovering drug addict. And I said, no, I'm an ex-drug addict. He said, no, you are a recovering drug addict. And I said, no, I'm an ex-drug addict. He said, son, once you're a drug addict, it's a disease. You never get rid of it. You always have it. And he said, you are, you are, you will always be a recovering drug addict. I said, no, you don't understand. God has touched my life. God healed me. I am an ex-drug addict. And he was very frustrated by this point. And he, he thought he would make it simple for me. And he said, son, he said, if you take a cucumber and you turn it into a pickle, can you ever turn it back into a cucumber? And he almost got me, because that's good logic. And then faith kicked in, and I looked at him, and I said, no. No, I can't. But God can. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what God has done in my life. He took a life that had been pickled with generational dysfunction, a life that had experienced the withering and the disfiguring, of bad decisions, both by me and by others in my life. And God not only extracted the vinegar from my life, but God restored the things that had been disfigured because of those experiences. But God would not have restored had I not been committed, and this is the key word, to the process of restoration. Because restoration is not instantaneous. And that was probably one of the biggest lessons the Lord taught me was that 
you have to trust his process because God is going to refine you in the process. Whenever you started dating your wife, what did her parents think? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good response. I have the absolute best in-laws in the world, and I am so grateful for them. You know, uh, we look back on it now with, with a bit of humor. Um, the, the family has talked about it a number of times. Um, we, we really see the hand of God in that situation. Um, I'll never forget, uh, I, had, I had known my wife. Um, my wife, her parents, pastor in Florida, and uh, she was in Texas going to Bible college, and she meets this guy who is eight years older than her and is um, an ex-felon. Um, who is, uh, at the time that I met her, I was still on parole. And, um, you know, so there, obviously, you know, there's some concerns there, and there would be for me. Um, they, they did know people that knew me and um, who, had, who had watched me, not just since I've been out of prison, but had watched me go through the process. So there were people that had, had watched me commit myself to God that had spoken up for me and said, you know what, um, he's genuine, he's, he's trying his best to live for God. Um, so that helped. And I'll, I'll never forget, um, I, had, I had known my wife, um, she was my girlfriend then, uh, for eight months when I decided to propose. And uh, I flew to Florida uh, over the summer. Um, she was back from Bible college, and uh, her dad um, had invited me to preach a weekend for him. So I flew out. Um, I was going to be there for the weekend, and I had planned on proposing to my wife. She did not know that. We had not talked about it. It was going to come as a complete surprise to her. And I remember going and sitting in the office of uh, my father-in-law, and I said, hey, I need to just talk to you about something. Um, I, I love Amber, and I'd like to ask her to marry me. And uh, he was very gracious. He said, well, I would like to have this conversation with you, but I don't think it would be right for me to have this conversation without her mom being present. And uh, so he put me on hold. He called her mom. Uh, I had to wait there on pins and needles for, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes for her mom to come up to the church. And um, when her mom came in the office, uh, he said, uh, he said, Joe has something that he wants to say to us turned it back over to me and so I went through my spiel again and said I love Amber and I'd like to ask her to marry me and you know I was expecting um, my past to come up I was expecting um, you know there to be some hesitation and I'll never forget the grace I experienced from my mother-in-law as she looked at me I could almost get tearful now just saying that she looked at me and she said you're the kind of man we've always prayed that our daughter would marry and you talk about healing and you talk about the sense of God's grace in that moment. Um, it, it certainly was. And, uh, and so they, my, my in-laws have been extremely gracious to me and, uh, you know, God is, God is restored. I, I, I there was some things missing, uh, from my life when it came to seeing, um, how families could be. And, uh, God has restored that in my uh, in my life through my in-laws and and what's beautiful is god has also restored uh my mom and dad and uh, my relationship with them 
I have a tremendous relationship with both of them, talk to them frequently. And um, uh, in fact, uh, they are uh, t- t- tuned in to our live stream service during this during this time that we've been live streaming and they're not going to church. They're checking out our live stream. And so I'm just I'm very grateful for what the Lord has done. So, so with that, with your family experiencing a time of healing, going back to here and kind of in the wrap up, your family now is experiencing a blessing. How do you advise families that are suffering to go from suffering to restoration? Yeah, it has to start with one person. I, I don't think it can be a family journey. One person has to be the entry point. For God's favor and God's blessing into a family. And I think if we wait to do it as a family, it'll never happen. Um, whether it be a spouse or a child, um, I just made up my mind that I was going to be a source of God's grace um, for my family. And uh, there were times that my family was still struggling with issues from the past, and they were incapable of responding to me the way that I wanted them to respond. But in time, God has changed those things. And I think that there just has to be one person who decides, I am going to live for God and be the doorway through whom God's grace can walk into my family. Whether anybody else does or not, Mm -hmm. I'm going to live for God. And I think what you're doing is you're giving God a foothold in the family. And in time, Opportunities are going to open. People are going to soften. And God will begin to change hearts. But somebody has to be that catalyst in the family. So I would say to to a person who's in a family wanting restoration, don't be discouraged if it takes longer than you think. Remember, we're working with souls and we're working with the human will. We cannot override their will. And so we we have to be willing to be patient and to wait for open doors and opportunities for God to soften their heart and prepare them. And I think something else I'd say to someone who is wanting restoration in their family is don't discount the power of your prayers. Um, You can pray for your family like nobody else can pray for your family because you care about your family like nobody else cares about your family. You can intercede for them. You know, I, I think about Abraham. Abraham had a family member who was in a very bad situation. Lot had basically surrendered his faith. In some respects, he was living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, His family was fully integrated in the culture. And Abraham was aware that judgment was about to fall in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. what's, What's informative to me is that Abraham did not run down there and try to physically drag Lot out of Sodom. When he found out judgment was coming, he didn't try to go down and use his influence and force Lot out. He went to God, and he started interceding on behalf of Lot and his family. And that intercessory prayer did more than Abraham could have ever done by force in causing angelic forces to descend on the city and to literally bring Lot and his two daughters out of that condemned city. So I would just encourage people who are in that situation, 
don't underestimate the power of your intercessory prayer. I can't tell you how many times that I prayed for my family. I'll also say this, that God will open up a moment. God will open up a moment where there can be reconciliation in a family. You see, it is our duty and obligation to forgive people. In fact, we can't be saved unless we are willing to forgive people. And I had forgiven my my family, particularly my, my dad, over, over some things um, early on in my walk with God. I had laid those things on the altar. I would forgiven him. But reconciliation wouldn't come for a few years. I remember when my dad came to visit me once uh, in the jail or in the prison, and uh, he and I were alone sitting at a picnic table. And it, I, I didn't plan this. It was, it was something that I had prepared my heart for. And the Lord opened the door at the right time. And I just reached over and I grabbed my dad's. My dad's got some very weathered, thick hands. And I grabbed his hands. And I said, Dad, I want to say something to you. I want to ask you to forgive me for every time that I ever said anything disrespectful. For every time that I ever hurt you. I ask you to forgive me right now. And dad, I want you to know that I release you of any responsibility for anything that has happened in my life. And I forgive you. And it was a very tearful moment for the both of us. But God was working healing. And so, you know, if you're in a situation where you're wanting restoration, pray and and ask God to open the door at the right time. The Lord will open that door. Yes. I, I have one last question before we get to our two final segments here. Um, my last question is, it's kind of a, uh, a lighter question, but do you have any contact with anybody that was you were incarcerated with still? I do, periodically, yeah. Um, uh, a couple of them are, are complete renegades, um, and I, I do talk to them periodically. Um, what do they think when you tell them you're a pastor now? You know, I, I, I think they're, they're pretty amazed. Um, and, uh, I, I think they saw it coming just from the life that I lived in prison. Um, I taught a lot of Bible studies in prison. Um, I, uh, I'll never forget my, and I hate to just keep telling stories, but when I first got in the county jail, there was another pastor who didn't live very far from us. He's now the president of Texas Bible College. His name's Gary Carter. And uh, Brother Carter uh, brought me, he, he came to the county jail, and he, he couldn't give me the uh, the uh, uh, the chart, or couldn't give me a Bible study. So he brought me the teacher's manual. It was a spiral-bound teacher's manual. And we had to take the spiral out of it because I could have stabbed somebody with it, I guess. <laughs> so I got this loose-leaf bunch of, of, um, of papers that were the teacher's manual for exploring God's Word. And I just consumed that for weeks. I just read through it repeatedly. I taught myself basically a Bible study using that teacher's manual. And, um, and then I, from what I gleaned there during my five-year term in prison, I, I taught guards Bible studies. I taught inmates Bible studies. Uh, I know of people that are – I know of one man in particular that's living for God today um, as a result of that. And, um, you know, so, so I have had contact. I do periodically have contact to answer your question. 
Um, it, I don't have a, an abundance of contact, but, but periodically we do talk. Through all these years of restoration, you've had a lot of people that have obviously invested in you. You talked about Brother Copeland extensively, and then other ministers you were connected with. Um, who are are there other ministers? Who are the other ministers out there that you connected with, and and what's your relationship like with them today? It's a great question. Um, one of the uh, one of the really uh, important relationships that I developed. Uh, while I was in the county jail, I was with a, uh, a young man who had just graduated uh, college, and uh, he had a ministry in the county jail that I was I was presently in. And I had been praying for God to send somebody to uh, to help me understand the Word of God, disciple me a little bit while I was in prison. My pastor Donnie Copeland would come visit me. I think sometimes on a weekly basis, but uh, I'm still hungry for more. And I remember. One day I went to one of the services that was offered there in the county jail, and um, there was a young man there, and he began to, to uh, teach and preach. And the more he preached and taught, the more I began to realize this guy teaches and preaches what I believe. And so I went up to him afterwards, and he introduced himself to me. His name was Steve Harris. And um, so Steve and I developed a friendship, and he was just an important part of those first few months uh, in the county jail of really directing me to the word, encouraging me. Um, and then once I transferred from the county jail to the prison, Steve continued to write me and we stayed in contact with each other uh, throughout most of my time in prison. When I was released from prison, um, I ran into Steve at a camp meeting in Texas. And at that time he was pastoring a church in East Texas. He pastored there for about 12 years. Uh, when I eventually started preaching, he would have me come preach for him a little bit, and uh, and in time, um, I eventually made my way to Wisconsin, started pastoring a church. Our church grew, purchased a large facility. I needed an administrator, and um, I'd heard that he had resigned his church in East Texas, so I reached out to him, and, uh, and so we are now working together. I hired him as a full-time administrative pastor, and he's now started a another campus out of our church, our North campus. Uh, he leads that particular work. And so God has kept our lives together. We met in the county jail. Uh, he was ministering. I was being ministered to, and now he serves on the staff that I'm privileged to lead. And so God has just, uh, kind of brought that full circle. His, uh, his daughter, uh, recently married our youth pastor. And I remember when I was in the, in the prison, getting a letter from Steve and in that letter he said hey I'm sorry I haven't written to you in a while uh, our daughter was just born her name is Naomi and uh, and so last year I got to perform Naomi's wedding and so here I was in jail <laughs> wow. hearing about it and now I'm her pastor and I'm, I'm getting to work and do ministry alongside him so it's just a neat thing of how God's brought that full circle wow that's awesome that that what what a what a story of what God has done. What a story of what God has done, and uh, I like to ask you, uh, Pastor, what are some what are some what what are you studying now? What are, what are you reading now? You know, I um, I've actually kind of gone back to some old books that I've read in the past, and I'm I'm rereading them. Um, I'm I'm going back through some some church history books right now. Uh, I think some of this um, uh, COVID-19 scare um, has just uh, given me a thirst for perspective. 
And uh, so I'm just going back through some, some church history books. Uh, I've also been tapping into some, some uh, old leadership books that I haven't been into in a while. And uh, so I, I would say that's where I'm at right now. I'm currently looking at Max Dupree's book, um, The Art of Leadership. Um, it's an old book, but a, but a good one. And um, going through David Bernard's series again on church history. Awesome. Well, Pastor Hanthorne, Brian, and I consider a privilege to be able to talk to you for uh, the past hour. Um, but before we get off here, we want to give you the next, you know, couple minutes here to just anything we may have missed, give you just a final word. Um, like Brian said, you have had an incredible testimony. I know our listeners are going to very much so enjoy listening to it. And thank you for being so open about your past and your story because we tell people all the time when we're trying to get them on, there's, there's no testimony without the test. And you, my friend, have went through the tests and trials that I could have never imagined going through. But for the next couple of minutes here, just, just kind of tell us where your heart beats at. What's God been dealing with you about? I think it's trust. Um, and, and going back to what I've alluded to several times in this, in this uh, podcast, it's just trusting God with the process. And understanding that God does work in processes. You know, there were times that I would have given anything to get out of the situation that I was in. But on the other side of this process, I wouldn't take anything in the world for it. Because what was painful in the moment has deepened me for the future. And so I would just encourage people listening. Don't be so eager to shortcut the process. Mm -hmm. Allow God to have his full work in your life. I remember a song when I was facing a lot of uncertainty in prison. I heard a song on the radio. I don't even know who sings it, but I've never forgotten the verses or, or, or the words to the chorus. It said something like this, if I'd had my way, I would have been wading through the river when you wanted me to walk upon the sea. If I'd had my way, all of my wants and my whims and my wishes. You knew how weak and how shallow I would be. So I'll trust your wisdom over mine because you've proven every time that in my narrow way of seeing things, I leave the best behind sometimes. And I might not have stayed this close if I'd had my way. Wow. What an episode. Just recently, if you follow us on our social media accounts, uh, I have just recently, as yesterday, uh, at the time of this recording, I posted a picture of our good friend, Brother Kenneth Carpenter of Maryville, Tennessee, a, a phrase that he said, and it said, don't spend an hour of your day praying over a situation and 23 hours worrying about it. Put your trust in God. Have faith in your prayers. Hold on, and don't rush the process. Guys, you've been listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. Hey guys, this is Brian, and I'm Tony, and you're listening to 
the Crucial Conversation podcast.